Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 25 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and the moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming town hall forums can be found online at eWestminster.org. It's our pleasure to welcome the third speaker in our five-part spring series, At Home in America. Jim Wallace has been described as, quote, the major prophetic evangelical Christian voice in America today, end quote. Raised in a devout evangelical family, Jim Wallace grew up with prayer and Bible study as a natural and integral part of his life. In his teenage years, his questioning of racial segregation in his church and community led him to the black churches and neighborhoods of inner city Detroit. He became a committed participant in the civil rights movement and actively protested the Vietnam War. While attending Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois, he joined with others in starting the Sojourners magazine and community. After 30 years, Mr. Wallace remains the executive director and editor-in-chief of Sojourners, continuing its commitment to provide an alternative perspective on faith, politics, and culture. He also currently leads Call to Renewal, a national federation of religious congregations and faith-based organizations working to overcome poverty in America and the world. In his newest book, God's Politics, Mr. Wallace commends Martin Luther King's extraordinary ability to bring religion into public life in a way that was welcoming, inclusive, and inviting to all who cared about moral, spiritual, or religious values. Mr. Wallace himself strives to achieve this same goal, and in his presentation today invites us to help build a new vision for faith and politics in America. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Jim Wallace. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, and the Westminster Presbyterian Church and the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Thank you not just for inviting me, but for having such a thing as a town forum. We have too few of these kinds of forums left in this country. So I'm glad to be here today for this, this forum. It's always great to be back in the Twin Cities, one of my favorite places in the world. I see lots of old friends out here. I like to be with a story. I tell lots of stories about my kids, and my son Luke is six years old. And just before the election, we'd been out trick-or-treating in the neighborhood, working the streets of our Southern Columbia Heights neighborhood, and he, he said the election was about to happen. He said, Daddy, this election is more important than Halloween, isn't it? <clears throat> he was sensing the national mood. No matter what happened in this election, half of the population of our country would have felt crushed by the result, at the point of their values, even their faith. This election was important. It is now caused by results and the way it was run, a fundamental reassessment, particularly of the role of religion. Many people watched the way religion was used and even abused in the election campaign. They watch the way it's discussed in the media. They watch the way it's talked about even in the White House. And they say, that's not my faith. Those aren't my moral values. I'm meeting those people across the country. What we're finding is town meetings disguised as book signings. We're having revivals in bookstores. And I want to share some good news tonight. Having been to the East, and the West, and the South, and the Midwest, I want to announce that I believe the monologue of the religious right 
is now over and a new dialogue has finally begun. In the thousands who are coming out, it's observing the rise of the non-religious right, which isn't much of a name for a movement, I'll grant you that. <laughs> but movement is the word I keep hearing at every stop along the way. It feels to me like a book tour has become a movement tour. Who's coming? Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's as diverse as I've ever seen. Evangelical Christians like me, who don't feel represented by a handful of, of television preachers on the religious right. Catholics who don't feel spoken for by a handful of bishops who say they must only vote on one issue and ignore all the rest of Catholic social teaching. Mainline Protestants who feel left out of this conversation as if their faith is not even respected. Black church members who say, why has this been such a white conversation? When they say evangelicals, they mean white evangelicals. Why aren't we ever discussed in this discussion? Hispanic Christians and Asian Christians and lots of rabbis have brought their synagogue congregations out. Young Muslims who are looking for a more tolerant, open, democratic faith are fighting a battle for the soul of their own religion. And many young people who would say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And always there's a young agnostic who says, I'm agnostic, I'm not religious, but thank you for making me feel included tonight. This is a conversation about the moral compass of our public life. Most of us, religious or not, want that conversation. It is much needed, and we are all needed for it. The truth is, I am a person of faith, but I want to say, as I always like to make clear, religion has no monopoly on morality. We need a conversation that is open, welcoming, inclusive, where everybody's a place at this table. I was in Boston at the beginning of this tour, and a young man walked up to a book table and said, uh, I'm gay. Thank you for making me feel included. But you know, it's easier to come out as gay in Boston than as religious in the Democratic Party. <laughs> but we are suggesting something more than a religious left. Rather, the restoring of the proper role of religion in public life, a prophetic role, a dynamic role, an independent role which doesn't neatly fit political categories of left and right, liberal and conservative. Religion is best, it offers most, when it is not ideologically predictable nor loyally partisan, but offers a moral force to challenge both right and left. Sometimes the press says, are you just trying to help politicians get religion? Well, I think we all need to get religion on the issues that God seems to care about the most that are often neglected by our politics. There are two ways to do this religion and public life thing that in American history. One is, is to claim that God is on our side blesses us, sanctions us, approves of our policies and habits and directions. Lincoln was worried about that. Don't do that, he said, but rather worry, pray earnestly that we are on God's side. The first way God on our side leads to things that are often not the most helpful in politics, like triumphalism, hubris, arrogance of all kinds, self-confidence, certainty and often bad foreign policy. The other, the other way, worrying if we're on God's side, leads to often the missing values of politics, like humility, penitence, reflection, perhaps even accountability. If Lincoln had it right, King did it best, Bible in one hand, Constitution, in the other hand, he invoked and convened a national moral discourse on politics. Above all, religion must no longer be a wedge 
and a weapon to divide us and destroy us. Religion is meant to be a bridge to bring us together across hostile, cultural, political, dividing lines, helping us not to think as just red and blue, but perhaps a little purple. The subtitle of this book, God's Politics, is Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. The right. On the right, folks are comfortable with the language of religion and values and faith and even God. So comfortable it sometimes feels like over there they seem to think they own the territory, own religion, own faith, own God. But then they narrow and restrict the conversation as if there are only two moral values questions at stake in America, abortion and gay marriage. Two important issues that need a much deeper moral discourse on all sides. But my goodness, can these be the only two questions? I am an evangelical Christian, and when I find 3,000 verses in the Bible on wealth, poverty, rich and poor, I must insist that addressing poverty is a moral values question too. Protecting the environment. Some of us might call that God's creation. That is a moral values issue too. And the ethics of war. The ethics of war. How we go to war. When we go to war and whether we tell the truth about going to war is a deeply religious matter as well. So how did Jesus become pro-rich, pro-war, and only pro-American? <laughs> it seems like our faith has been hijacked. It's time for a rescue operation. My friends, it's time to take back our faith. <laughs> Publishers put you on these TV shows, and some of them are not so fun, and some of them are fun. John Stewart was fun. Uh, we had a good time together and uh, he opened by saying, now Jim, you want to bring religion and even like the teachings of Jesus into politics? And I could feel his youthful audience around the country thinking to themselves, oh no, he's got some wacko evangelical on my favorite show. He's going to ruin it. So I said, yeah, John, and I hardly think Jesus' two top priorities would have been a capital gains tax cut and the occupation of Iraq. <laughs> then we got some Christian Jewish banner going. He said, uh, he, he asked a question. I said, good question, John. He said, you mean good question for a Jewish guy? He said, I know we're not going to heaven, but could we have a neighborhood nearby? We'd keep it clean. <laughs> I said, now, John, we're all for moral values. I'm sure you are. He didn't say anything. I said, maybe you're not. Well, can I have, can I have the weekends off? He said. <laughs> he said, I'm, afterwards, he said, I'm kind of secular. I said, John, the biblical prophets used humor satire, and truth-telling to make their points. In my inscription in his book, I said, John, maybe you're in the tradition of the Hebrew prophets. There is a place for all of us in this conversation. The emails I received from that television show have just touched my heart in very deep ways. Young people, hundreds and then thousands, saying, I lost my faith because of television preachers, bad fundraising, pedophile priests, cover-up bishops, too much of this talk about God being on our side in the highest circles of power. Or, amazingly, they said, I didn't know you could be a Christian 
and care about poverty, care about the environment, or care about the war in Iraq. But then at the end, they all said, but you know what? I think I may be coming back to faith. And the evangelical in me had his heart warmed. Every major social reform movement in our American history was fueled, at least in part, by religion and faith. There is a progressive, prophetic religious movement. The left doesn't get this. They have forgotten this. Just decades ago, the left was connected to a civil rights movement vitally linked to black churches. I believe in the separation of church and state. Because you'll probably ask that. But the separation of church and state does not mean the banishing of moral values and religious language from our public discourse. Where would we be? Where would we be if the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had just kept his faith to himself? In the public arena, we do not need competing claims of religiosity. How many times does this candidate go to church? How many Bible verses have they learned? God spoke to me yesterday and gave me the fix for Social Security. No, we rather take a moral turn in the public sphere and we say, I come here because I'm motivated by faith, by conscience, by my values. But now I must be disciplined by democracy. Religion must be disciplined by democracy because in the public square you have to win a debate about what's best for the common good. We bring all of our values, all of our faith, and then we have to win a political debate. Whoever wins the debates about values in this country will shape the future of American politics. And so they should. The biggest mistake the left has made is in conceding the entire territory of religion and values to the religious and the political right, and then we are surprised when they define it in their own narrow and partisan ways. That is a mistake that progressives must never, ever make again. I was speaking, I was speaking to another environment much different than this wonderful town meeting in a beautiful church. The inmates of Sing Sing Prison wrote and said, come speak to us. Sounded interesting. I wrote back and said, sure, when do you want me to come? This young brother wrote me again and said, well, we're free most nights. <laughs> he said, we're, we're kind of a captive audience here. So the prison authorities were very generous. They gave us a room down in the bowels of Sing Sing Prison. This is the prison, you know the phrase, up the river? Well, this is up the river, Hudson River in New York State. And so 80 guys and I were left alone in a room for five hours that night. And I'll never forget what one young man said to me. He said, you know, Jim, all of us here at Sing Sing are from just about four or five neighborhoods in New York City. Imagine, just four or five neighborhoods, a whole prison. It's like a train. It begins in my neighborhood. You get on the train when you're nine or ten years old, and that train ends up here at Sing Sing. He'd had a spiritual conversion, this young man, inside the walls. He was part of a New York theological seminary program training masters of divinity inside the walls of prison becoming preachers inside the joint. You graduate when your sentence is up. When I get out, he said, I want to go back and stop that train. That's what I call a faith-based initiative. <laughs> what I want to say to today is that Faith is about changing the big things. Changing the big things that no one else thinks can be changed. It's not about these partisan, petty debates that just, that just shrink our religion into such a small conversation. 
You stop fast urban trains on their way to destinies at Sing Sing. That's a big thing. Three billion people living on $2 a day on God's earth. That's a big thing. 30,000 children will die today and every day because of a silent tsunami. They'll take their lives because of hunger and disease and lack of clean drinking water. Things that we could change even quickly if we ever decided we wanted to. Those are some of the big things our faith is supposed to change. I was raised, um, I was raised, Tim, in an evangelical environment. I remember um, my first conversion. I was six years old. My parents were worried. I mean, I was six years old and I hadn't been saved yet. I was getting up in years. So when a Sunday night preacher came in, he was a fiery revivalist, we're full today here, but if we weren't full, I guarantee you the first row would be empty. Because people feel the closer you are to a sermon, the more likely it'll change your life. So we had to sit in the front row because our parents made us, and this preacher, he pointed. It felt like right at me, and he said, if Jesus came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven, and you would be left all by yourself. It got my attention. I realized at six I would have had a five-year-old sister to support. And so I asked my mother how to fix this. My mother was good at fixing things. And she told me not about God's wrath for a little boy, but about God's love for me. It sounded cool. I signed up and repented of the sin and degradation of my first six years, which was actually pretty substantial. <laughs> and I, I went along fine. It was going well. It was maybe not a deep conversion, but it was real for a six-year-old. My second conversion, though, was most formative. I was 14. Now paying attention in my city, Detroit, Michigan, to the news, newspapers, what was happening around me. And I began to ask 14-year-old very innocent questions. Why is it that we live the way we do in white Detroit? And life seems so different in black Detroit. I didn't know about unemployment and hunger and lack of affordable housing and people in prison. I didn't know about those things, but I was hearing about it. And who was this minister in the South named King? What is he up to anyway? My questions took me into the city because they weren't being answered at home in the church. They said, you're too young to ask these questions. You'll understand when you're older or we don't know why it's that way either, but it's always been that way. Finally, an honest answer came, if you keep asking these kinds of questions, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. And that proved to be true. I went to the city and I met the black churches, the other evangelical churches I hadn't heard about. They read the same Bible, loved the same Jesus, sang out of the same hymn book, and made it sound so much better than we did. <laughs> and I came home with new answers and new friends and new questions, and here's what I was told one fateful night. Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. Our faith is personal. I left that night. My church, my childhood faith, I couldn't push the questions down. I joined the Civil Rights Movement, came back to faith years later. I didn't have words to go around that experience, but I do now. And these are the words. God is personal, but never private. God is personal. This God wants a relationship with each and every one of us. This God knows everything about every one of us and wants a relationship anyway. It's an amazing thing. Why? Because God, God wants to sign us up, you see. I'm a 19th century evangelical born in the wrong century. 
Charles Finney was an evangelist in the 19th century, the Billy Graham of his day. He was the one who invented the altar call. Do you know why? He wanted to sign his converts up for the anti-slavery struggle. That's why we first had an altar call. I want to sign people up today. Whether you buy a book or not is not my concern. The publisher hates it when I say that. <laughs> I want to sign people up for a movement, a movement of faith, tackling the big things that can make a difference. What changes history finally in the end is not politicians, but social movements. They change politicians. Social movements that have a spiritual foundation. These town meetings we're having, not just diverse, they are young, where I'm signing books for 16-year-olds and 14-year-olds. And last week, I looked up from the table and a little tiny girl was standing there. How old are you, I asked. She said, I'm 11 years old. I stopped the line. What did you get out of tonight? She said, well, I think we're just going to have to change the world. <laughs> Who's going to do that, I asked her. Well, I think people just like me, she said. The real choice in our time is not the one I was given as a kid, belief or secularism. That's not the choice. The real choice for us now is the choice between cynicism and hope. That's the choice. I'm sympathetic with the cynics. They know what's wrong. They're against what's wrong. Maybe they even tried for a while to change it. But they got tired. They got disappointed. They, they got weary. They got burned out. They got to feel vulnerable. Commitment makes you feel vulnerable. They were treated to cynicism, which is a safe place to hide. It's a buffer against commitment. That's what cynicism is. Oh, I'm against all the wrong things. Don't get me wrong. I'm politically correct. I just know it'll never change. So I don't have to commit myself because it'll never change. And I gotta protect find some security for myself. Not changing my views, just stepping back a little. That's why hope is a matter of faith. My Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen, or my best paraphrase is, hope is believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Hope is not a feeling a personality type. Hope is a decision. It's a choice you make because of faith. And history has been changed by people who've made that choice by faith to imagine a different kind of world. But you see, faith doesn't work until you bet your life on it. Then it does. There's a lot of young people tonight, let me just say this. Make the choice between career and vocation. They're different things. Career is where you assemble your assets and you figure out which ladder you can, of ascent, you can start on at the highest rung. Maybe the second rung, third rung. My Harvard students always want to start in the fourth rung. They think they are owed that. And you make your way up the ladder of success. And if you're an evangelical Christian, you talk about me and the Lord all the way up. Vocation's very different. Vocation isn't to assemble your assets and put them on a resume. It's to discern your gift. What's your gift? Probably that thing that's down deep inside of you, your gut, your soul, your heart. What are you really good at? What do you lose track of time when you're doing? What makes you who you are? What were you put on this planet to probably to do? Where your gift meets the crushing needs of the world, that's your vocation. Your gift, the crushing needs of the world, that's your vocation. That's where you're supposed to live your life, right at that intersection. Then, we can do what politics needs. 
which is so much more than lobbying and advocating. It's, I talk in the book about this metaphor of the politicians in Washington, D.C., lots of places. Good people, I know lots of them. But there are people who walk around with their fingers in the air, often wet fingers, licked, put up in the air to see which way the wind's blowing. You don't change a nation by replacing one wet-fingered politician with another. You change a nation by changing the wind. How do we change the wind? I want to close, I want to close with a story that's a benediction for the book and for every time I talk about these things. My friend's name was Lisa Sullivan. She was a young African-American kid in the streets of D.C. She was smart, so smart, she went to Yale and got herself a Ph.D. When you're young, black, female, with a Yale Ph.D., you can write your ticket to wherever you want to go. But she came back to the streets, and the kids on the street won her heart. And she became Lisa Sullivan, the best street organizer I ever, I ever saw. She used hip-hop, rap. She hugged, scolded, loved, confronted, fundraised, organized, built capacity. She was a star. She was the future. One day I got a call. Lisa's big heart, such a big heart, had an ailment, a rare heart ailment. Nobody knew about it, especially Lisa. And within two weeks, my board member, my friend, this young leader of the future, before she was 40, had died. Marion Wright Edelman of the Children's Defense Fund and I stood at her graveside and we held each other and wept because Lisa was the future. But she leaves us so much, thousands of kids, but some words that I want to leave you with today as a commission, a commission. When people would say, the problems are too big, the streets, the violence, the drugs, the corruption, what we're facing is too big and we're too small, our budget, our staff, our resources, our faith is too small. And Lisa, we don't have leaders anymore today like Martin Luther King Jr. We don't have any kings anymore. It's too big, we're too small, and we don't have any leaders. She'd get angry. Don't talk like that, she'd say. Don't say it's too big and we're too small. And don't say we don't have any leaders anymore. She'd say, and these are her words, don't you understand, don't you understand, she'd say, we are the ones we have been waiting for. We are the ones we have been waiting for. It only takes a small group of people to believe that and claim it to change the world. God bless you. Thank you, Jim Wallace. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Church and moderator of today's forum. Our guest is Jim Wallace. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the sponsors of today's forum, the General Mills, Nash, and Baker Foundations, and the Hognander Family Foundation, we also want to thank the many generous individuals who support our mission to promote public discourse on the critical issues of our time. We invite you to join the Westminster Town Hall Forum for the next presentation in our series, At Home in America, on Thursday, May 5th, when Robert Putnam of Harvard will speak on community engagement in a changing America. Mr. Wallace, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. You've clearly demonstrated your belief that religion should be brought into the public square. 
You advise, however, that religion must be disciplined by democracy. What do you mean by this? I mean that we, you don't win and shouldn't win because you're religious. You don't say this is a Christian nation or a Judeo-Christian nation, and because it's my faith, I get to win. You must make your argument, make your case. You've got to persuade fellow citizens that this which you advocate is what is best for all of us, for the common good. Martin King had this vision called a beloved community. Everybody got to the table and those left behind got front row seats. But then he fought for a civil rights law in 1964 and a voting rights act in 1965 and he had to persuade all of us that this was the best thing for all Americans and he did. So we have to win the argument and not just claim a special case for ourselves. Question about the beloved community. We are all addicted to our affluent material lifestyle and can't imagine giving up all of our creature comforts. How then do we kick the habit, downsize our culture of consumption, and reclaim our connection with the beloved community? Do you remember this uh, flawed exit poll last fall that created a national discourse about moral values? Remember that? There was a poll the next week by, by Zogby, and it was fascinating. It was, about, it was with voters who just voted. It said, what's the greatest moral crisis in the nation? And 64%, 64%, right. Well, 64% said greed and materialism or poverty and economic justice, 64%. So don't tell me these issues don't resonate with the American people. What would be nice if we had some leaders who spoke about these issues. After the election, the day after, I was asked, I guess your vision lost. I said, no, mine wasn't running. Um, uh, I think political leadership that speaks to these questions might get more of a response than any of us expect. If you met the president today, what words of wisdom would you share with him? Well, when I did meet him, <laughs> Uh, back in August before he, uh, but no, before he came to Washington the, for the first time, uh, a number of us, I, I admired the fact he brought about 20 of us together in Austin, who many of us didn't vote for him and some did, and I said, surprise us, do something very significant on the issue of poverty. Commit to cut child poverty by half in 10 years. The labor government in, in the UK and Britain has done that. And you know what? They're halfway there. They're on track to cut domestic child poverty by half in 10 years. These are measurable goals that have outcomes that you can be held accountable for. That's what we need. And, and we talked about that. Uh, he said, I think, candidly, said, I, I don't understand poor people. I've never been around poor people. Uh, I'm a white Republican guy who doesn't get it, but I'd like to get it. I'd, how do I get it? I admire that candor. I said, listen to people who are poor and those who work with the poor. In the inaugural, he said, most of us don't understand poverty. We should listen to those who do. Today, I would probably say that to see evil in the face of September 11th is right and good. If we can't see evil there, we are suffering from some kind of postmodern relativism, I suppose. But to say they're evil and we are good is bad theology. And it leads to bad foreign policy. And probably say, unless we drain the swamps of injustice in which these mosquitoes of terrorism breed, we will never defeat terrorism. need to explain this to our radio audience here. Westminster Church is, uh, they're hanging from the rafters here. And this is a question from uh, someone out in the hall uh, with, with my two-year-old. Moms were the ones who swung the vote for Bush, a 13-point swing. How do you get your message to us moms in the hall? You know, this year there was a lot of talk about soccer mom and uh, security mom and NASCAR dad. Uh, some of us talked about Burger King mom and the need to bring her into the conversation as well. Uh, I am a, 
a father with new with young kids. I'm a kind of a late coming father, a six year old and a two year old. I'm t-ball coach on Friday night, and and I think there's nothing that's more important to me than this issue of how we raise our kids. I say a lot of places that parenting has become a countercultural activity in America, and all parents nod their heads, liberal or conservative. How to raise our kids? What kind of world do we want for our kids? I do a lot of listening to my kids about what they see around them. My kids see contradictions that don't feel right to them, things that they think we ought to do better at. And so maybe a conversation with our kids about the kind of world they want for their kids is a good way to have some public discourse. A follow-up on that question about uh, bridging. Uh, you say religion is to be a bridge. What are some of the main bridging issues between those on the liberal left and those on the religious right? Well, parenting and, and, and family issues are one. Uh, you know, I, I've, uh, I was at Focus on the Family. Uh, I had a conversation with uh, James Dobson's policy people. I said family breakdown is a huge issue in America. Uh, my neighborhood has 80% single-parent families. You can't overcome poverty with 80% single-parent families. Well, Explain to me, though, how family breakdown is the result of gay and lesbian people. I haven't figured that out yet, you know? Uh, and at the end of that conversation, they said, at focus on the family, we concede that family breakdown is due much more to heterosexual dysfunction than gay and lesbian people. I think a new conversation about family, about a consistent ethic of life. It's amazing how people on all sides want to claim the Pope for their political cause. You know, the right wants to talk about abortion and euthanasia and sexual morality and forget how passionate this Pope was against the war in Iraq. The White House did not get the photo op they hoped for when the President visited the Vatican and the Pope shook his finger at George W. Bush about the war in Iraq. Uh, this, this consistent ethic of life that Catholics speak of cuts both ways in politics. So I want to see more consistency. And I do think the issue of poverty is going to be a rallying cry. There's a new civil rights movement growing among young people and the issue is what's happening to those whom Jesus called the least of these. They're coming from both sides of the spectrum and this is going to be the defining issue. That and the issue of conflict that fuels poverty and poverty comes from it. And I see a whole lot of evangelical kids now talking about the creation, the environment. A whole new generation is going to find the points of, of common ground. And we'll learn someday that you find common ground by moving to higher ground. There's a question about, a question about tax policy. In our state, there's a lot of debate these days on whether we should raise taxes or not. In fact, there's conversation about instituting a, a new revenue stream through gambling. Is tax policy a political or a moral issue? <laughs> There's a fundamental um, framework question that we should employ. Washington, D.C. is going through the same set of conversations about a budget and about taxes. And we have to assert again and again this principle. A budget is a moral document. A budget is a moral document, reflecting the values and priorities of a family, a church, a nation, a state. Who will suffer? Who will benefit? Who will bear the brunt of deficit reduction and fiscal responsibility? Those most able to or those least able to? We have to see uh, taxes in a moral environment. Uh, I won't go into it now, but we did a, a, an article in Sojourners about this amazing uh, conversation in Alabama recently about uh, a tax lawyer went to seminary. That's a dangerous thing. And she uh, did a Judeo-Christian uh, study on taxation. And the Republican conservative government governor was persuaded by that and offered the most broad tax reform Alabama had ever seen. It lost, but it was a shot across the bow that taxes and budgets are moral issues to which we have to begin to apply our faith.
Mr. Wallace, the way you are talking is not what I usually associate with those who call themselves evangelical. What's going on here? <laughs> Define evangelical, please. Usually it's about something to do with Jesus <laughs> and the scriptures. I mean, those are the two things come up over and over again. And so um, I think we need a reclaiming of that, of that tradition. The word evangelical comes from the word evangel in the Bible, which means good news, good news. And Jesus uh, talk, spoke of this at his first sermon where he gave his mission statement at Nazareth his Nazareth manifesto. <laughs> he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Evangelicals in our history and now being reclaimed again have said before and now we're saying again, any gospel that isn't good news to poor people is simply not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You spoke of politicians from uh, both sides of the aisle wetting their fingers and putting them into the air to test the winds. How can congregations and communities change the wind? How does one triage or prioritize what to do next? You know, there are, there are political leaders that I have known uh, who really to do the right thing, uh, even when it was politically threatening to them. I, sadly don't need even both hands to count all the ones that I've known, but I've known politicians like that. Uh, one of them I had the blessing to introduce once, we were speaking together, I had just preached and he was next and I said, I want to introduce you to, uh, to a U.S. Senator, but he really sounds more like a Hebrew prophet at his best, so come and preach to us, Paul Wellstone. Um, but normally, normally you have to change the wind before they turn in a different direction. I think again, it me, it's about how we live, how we organize, how we mobilize our constituencies. We need the right has done this well, and we should we should learn from there from their uh, success. They created a national voice, a regular, consistent voice, in a town meeting kind of uh, media way, and we needed the same thing, and they organized. Organized, organized, organized. At the congregational level, pastors, lay people, we have to do that too. Movements are what change history. The Jubilee 2000 debt cancellation movement made the UK and the US cancel the bilateral debt of the world's poorest nations. Gordon Brown, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Great Britain, the number two person will succeed Tony Blair in a year or two, once said to me, this was the most important movement in Britain since William Wilberforce and the anti-slavery crusade. We would not have canceled that debt were it not for this church-based Jubilee 2000 movement. We've done this before, my friends, and we can do it again. Jim, what would you say to those who challenge your assertion that the civil rights movement was a religious movement when not only is there no concept of human rights in the Bible, but based on those teachings, people were enslaved and women subjugated? Well, you know, uh, those of us who are religious must be the first to say that religion has been used as oppressive, uh, divisive, uh, patriarchal, hierarchical, and for the sake of supporting violence. It also has been catalytic, transformational, and liberating. The paradox must be admitted. The slave owners gave that Bible to their slaves to turn their eyes away from their plight on the earth and turn their eyes to heaven. That's why they introduced the Bible to the slaves. But in that book, the slaves found Moses and Jesus, who became the foundation for their liberation struggle. So it's always that mix of religion that is 
it is repressive and, and, and supports the status quo and defends slavery and all the rest. And that prophetic dynamic tradition in all of our great religious faiths. Prophetic faith is the answer to bad religion. Some think the answer to bad religion is secularism. I say the answer to bad religion is better religion. Just have a few seconds left here. Mr. Wallace, what are the marks of an America with the end, with the, boy the handwriting's bad here, uh, with the kind of biblical values you have been speaking about? What would an America look like with those values? <laughs> a few seconds? <laughs> you know, I, I, I think, um, my experience is people around the world don't, don't hate Americans. They often hate what we do. They hate many of our policies. The world would, I think, welcome American leadership, but not American domination. Somebody has to lead by saying, what happens to the poorest people on the face of the earth is going to be our priority. Somebody has to say, we need better answers to the inevitable conflicts between us, better answers than preemptive, unilateral, and endless war. Somebody has to say, international law, international institutions can, in fact, resolve our deepest conflicts, but only if we give ourselves to those solutions. I think the world is waiting for a different kind of leadership. They don't want a domination. They want our leadership. I was once, I'll say quickly, at a table in South Africa with Frank Chikani in the heart of apartheid. He was given the job as the director of the uh, South African National Council of Churches by Nelson Mandela in prison to begin drafting a constitution for South Africa. In that little house in Soweto on a kitchen table, a linoleum table, with military caspers outside supported by my government to have surveillance on Frank and then on me. He was writing the new constitution of South Africa. There were two documents on the table. One was the American constitution. The other was the Declaration of Independence. Our vision, our democratic vision, and the prophetic religious vision that many of us share combined together are a powerful force. When they are corrupted by countervisions that are oppressive and, and, and would, 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 would cover over the vision and hope of that possibility, the world's afraid of us. If we found a moral vocabulary, recovered our heart and our soul, perhaps the world would welcome again some leadership from this country. Thank you, Jim Wallace.